And this morning we're back in the book of 1 Samuel. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 21. Approximately the last third of 1 Samuel is, is devoted to the time in which David is on the run from King Saul. It's like a really long chase scene at the end of a movie. Uh, Hollywood probably wouldn't think it'd be a smart way to end a story. Good thing Hollywood's not in charge. In a story, the, the hero moves from one crisis to the next, and he escapes one threat and then falls into a, a deeper danger. And it's sometimes easier for us as Bible readers to skip maybe to the, the last 10 chapters and just get right to the end, what happens. But in so doing, you're deciding what's best for you instead of God deciding. And perhaps the last 10 chapters might have something for us to learn and apply to our lives. Now, one reason, there's many, one reason these remaining chapters are important is that there's no fewer than seven psalms that are explicitly associated with the events that are told in these chapters. Seven. And so there's something there for us to learn. The psalms point us to these experiences of David and give us context to much of the pain and the suffering that David experienced as he ran. And so, Lord willing, next week we're going to pause for a moment from 1 Samuel and look at one of those psalms, Psalm 34 and the, a number of other psalms that give us a, a better understanding of, of the other side. What, what is David is experiencing and how is he processing all that's happening in his life as he runs for his life from King Saul. And so I hope that'll help us, it'll serve us well to understand even the fuller picture of the book of 1 Samuel. But this morning we're going to continue to, to make our way through, and we're gonna look at three chapters this morning, 1 Samuel 21, 22, and 23. And before we do, we need to pray and ask God to give us understanding. So uh, we're gonna pray, I'm gonna pray for you, you pray for me, and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come and gather together as the body of Christ and to worship you. And God, we, we've worshiped through, through singing, through the reading of your word, and through uh, giving of the offering. And God, now we continue in our worship by hearing your word preached. And we ask, God, that you would teach your people, that you would bring understanding and clarity as we look at your word that you would be the teacher, you would be the guide, you would be the one to bring conviction upon their hearts. And I pray for your people this morning that they will learn and grow and they'll leave different than when they came in. And we'll be sure to give you all the honor and glory for what you'll do in this place. For we ask it all in Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. My, my outline is basically the three chapters, nothing elaborate at all. So we're gonna start here in 1 Samuel 21, and we're gonna look at David's deliverance. When we reach chapter 21, we find David now is fully on the run from his father-in-law. He's being hunted. Uh, David will run and hide over and over for the rest of the book. And, and, and as we look through these, these three chapters, you know, I, I, I considered looking at these at a slower pace, maybe taking each chapter, but... In effect, I would be preaching the same sermon over and over. And, and so instead of doing that with just slightly different details, we're just gonna take it all in one shot. So we'll be here till 1.30. <laughs> or I might talk really fast. So you guys just take really good notes and, and we'll, we'll, we'll take it one big bite this morning. Uh, the, the section in 1 Samuel is about the Messiah betrayed. 
Now, the, the book of 1 Samuel makes frequent reference to the Lord's anointed, which translates to the Messiah. And David is the Messiah of Israel. He is the chosen one to replace Saul. And as we saw two weeks ago, Saul isn't happy to be replaced. He, he wants David dead, and he begins his hunt to take his life. And Saul would literally do anything to have David killed. So David runs, and that brings us to 1 Samuel 21. So we're going to read through, I'll pause as we read through these chapters, so just follow with me as we start here. 1 Samuel 21, starting at verse 1. And David came to Danab and Ahimelech, excuse me, the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young man for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, True, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are, are holy even when it is ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread but the, there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Hamelech, There have you not here a spear or a sword at hand, for I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take it, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that, give it to me. So things start out okay. Jonathan, if you remember back in 20, leaves David in the field and he travels to Nob, about three miles from Gibeah. And when he arrives, he visits the priest, Ahimelech. And he's troubled, the priest is, when he sees David. The text says that he's trembling when he sees David because David is not with his army. He's, he's unarmed himself also. And it doesn't seem correct. There's something very wrong here. Seeing David pretty much alone without his army, without his weapons, without food, seems to suggest to the priest that he's on the run. He's a fugitive. Well, and David has some answers for Ahimelech, and he deceives Ahimelech by telling him that he's on a mission from the king, that he cannot give more details as to what it is. He, he deceives him in order to calm his fears and earn his trust. But as we will see as we get through this section, the deception that he has brings disastrous results. He asked for two things from Ahimelech, bread and a weapon. Bread, first, David requests bread from the high priest. He and his men are on, a, on this journey. They're needing for nourishment. But the only bread is the tabernacle. It's the holy bread. And each Sabbath day, 12 flat cakes of bread, hot from the oven, were placed on golden trays on the golden table in the sanctuary. And there were two rows of six loaves each, one loaf for each tribe of Israel. Levitical law required that no one eat this bread except consecrated priests. But this is what is given to David and his men after some discussion of their cleanliness. Later in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus Christ would approvingly call attention to this account in the sixth chapter of his Gospel account. He would use this story from 1 Samuel 21 to tell the Pharisees of how the high priest mercifully met the needs of David and his men. 
And Jesus did this to rebuke the legalistic strictness of the Pharisees with regard to keeping the Sabbath in such a way as to leave no room for a merciful meeting of human necessity during their uh, observances. The, the Pharisees, if you can imagine, struggle with this idea. We too might struggle with the same idea as the Pharisees. We, we hold the word of God as a hammer to hit people with instead of a tool to gently guide believers to right and holy living. And I, and I pray that we would be people who love the word and look to know it and apply it to our lives and the lives of those that we minister to. Ahimelech would probably not have given the consecrated bread to, to most people, but he gave it to David because David was God's anointed. He used godly wisdom, not the law, and Jesus honors him for it in, in Luke's gospel. Well, it wasn't just Ahimelech that was present for the discussion. There was also another in verse 7. It says, Doeg the Edomite. You need to remember that name. It'll come up here in this section later this morning. But David didn't just need bread. No, he also needed a weapon. He asked Ahimelech for something, a sword, a spear, something. And as providence would have it, Goliath's sword that David took from the battle was there. It seems very probable that this is the purpose and why David came to visit Ahimelech. We're not sure the text doesn't tell us. In verse 10, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before, him, before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Akish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So David leaves the high priest and heads to Gath. Now, this doesn't seem smart at all. Do you remember Gath? Gath is one of the five cities of the Philistines. Gath is the hometown to, anyone know? Goliath. What does David have with him? Goliath's sword. Not a smart move. Goliath's killer with Goliath's sword now comes to Goliath's hometown. This was obviously from our vantage point, not a bright move, but he most certainly chose the last place on earth that Saul would come looking for him. He's seeking refuge, and it doesn't take long for David to be recognized. I suppose that David might have thought that King Achish would have welcomed him in as a defector from Saul, but that wasn't what happened. David was persona non grata in Gath. Would the widows of those warriors, Philistine warriors, think that it would be okay for David to hang around town? Did he really think that he could just slip into the culture there and not be noticed? You know, how desperate David must have been to try to find refuge in the Philistine city of Gath. They were well aware of who David was. And they repeat the song that was sung by the Israelite women earlier that we looked at of David's exploits in the battlefield. And what do they do? They arrest him. And what options do David have at this time? As he's running from Saul, he's caught by the Philistines in Gath. Well, he decides to deceive them too. He changes his behavior and acts like a lunatic in their midst. He sprays nonsense 
graffiti on the doors of the town gate. Just more work for the Parks and Rec Department, I'm sure, to clean up. And to seal the performance, he let spit run down his beard. But apparently the town is already chock full of crazy people. And the king says, get him out of here. And David is free. He's released. But before we leave this chapter and, and all that it's entailed, we do need to talk briefly about deceit. It comes up here a couple times. We see it with David deceiving the priest, David deceiving the king. And I, I don't dare defend David, but it, it doesn't seem that the scriptures do either. The text doesn't recommend David's contact, conduct. It only reports it. But as we read this account, we need to be careful not to read it in a vacuum. We may easily rise to a holy hill and call this a horrific sin. But let me ask you, when you leave town for a few days, do you happen to leave lights out in your house? Right? You, you usually, when you're leaving, say, I'm going I'm to leave the front window lights on. You put them on a timer. Why do you do that? Anyone want to answer? <laughs> to deter burglars, right? Friends, that's deception. You've deceived someone. You're not looking to hurt anyone, but you've deceived someone. So I'm not defending it, but we need to be careful not to go to the extreme and condemn David here. The scriptures don't condemn him either. An even more grave illustration, in 1938, Roman Tursky, a Polish flyer, was returning home from France, and his plane developed an engine problem, and he had to land for repairs in, in a Nazified Vienna area. The next morning, as Tursky stepped out of his hotel to buy souvenirs before resuming his flight, a fellow came running through the door and slammed into him. Before Tursky could inflict any verbal vengeance, he saw the man was white with fear. And he said, the man said to him, Gestapo, Gestapo. And Tursky rushed him through the lobby up to his room. He arranged the man's slender body under the covers of his, the foot of his bed, and Tursky made himself look like he had just gotten up just as the Gestapo came into his room. After talking with the Gestapo and having his passport checked, the Gestapo left without searching the room. The man got up, showed his gratefulness for his protection. He mentioned that he needed to leave, and they tried to communicate together, and they looked at uh, Tursky's map to try to understand where this could happen. Tursky knew that he, he would be caught at any airport with this man, so they developed a plan to get him out of Vienna, but he couldn't land in Warsaw, Poland. And he couldn't land, he could land near Krakow to refuse, but it would need to be in a field outside of the, the protection or the, the watch of the police. And it was there that he was smuggled out into safety. When he made it to Krakow, Tursky was questioned heavily. They searched his plane from top to bottom because they had been told that he assisted a man to escape Vienna. But they found nothing and they were forced to release Tursky. He asked them as he was walking to his plane why they were looking for this man. They said he was a Jew. See, God has seen fit to use these situations for his honor and for his glory. And we, we leave it in his hands and trust his judgment in those circumstances. And so in chapter 21, we conceive David's deliverance. And we move to chapter 22, David's suffering. Verse 1, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there, there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there was with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will 
do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Who would want to be a Christian today? Especially in our world, right? Faith in Jesus Christ is not a passport to fame and fortune. It's not a passport to pleasure and comfort. And, and if that's your definition of Christianity, then you might not be worshiping the right God. For many in this world, many, being a Christian means you are inviting hardship and even persecution into your life. The Bible repeatedly tells us that following Christ will mean suffering. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Maybe we need to change our sign to state that as people drive by, come suffer with us. Because as Christians, we can't escape it. If you call yourself a Christian here this morning, you are going to suffer. Following God means we don't follow the world. And for David to follow God, he will reject following Saul, and we see the effects of this in 1 Samuel 22. From Gath, David heads to the caves of Adullam, but David isn't just a small group now. No, it's grown. We read that his brothers and his father and his father's house join him. The same brothers who once disregarded David now join him. It tells us not everyone in Saul's kingdom was enjoying life. David's family, along with 400 men, join him. And these are the, the losers, the, the debtors, the downtrodden, the bitter, and those delusioned with Saul's kingdom. They're so dissatisfied with Saul, they would rather join this man on a run in a cave. How desperate could they be? They don't stay for long, but they head to Mizpah of Moab. His interest is to find a place for his mother and father to, to live their final years. And the king agrees, and David is, I'm sure, relieved to find help for them. But why is this king so helpful to the family of David? I hope you haven't forgotten the connection of Moab and David. His own great-grandmother was a Moabitess, Ruth. Do you remember Ruth? I'm sure having Moabite blood and David had helped his case to find a retirement home for mom and dad. And our text this morning doesn't harp on this connection to Moab, but I believe it's worthwhile to look at it for a moment. Does this connection give us new light in the events that we studied in the book of Ruth? Does it give us some hope to all the trials and the suffering that Naomi experienced? Do you remember Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law? Remember, the book of Ruth isn't about Ruth. It's about Naomi. Naomi, who loses her sons and loses her husband and forced to head home, only with Ruth on her arm. The, the albatross around her neck that displayed to her home country that she failed. And her deep pain and her poverty and her depression and her troubles. And yet the persistent faithfulness of her Moabite daughter-in-law who wouldn't leave her side. She wouldn't forsake Naomi. And there in the story, Ruth meets Boaz and they marry and they have a son, Obed. And Obed has Jesse and Jesse has David. Do you see it, friends? See, I believe all this forms a perfect backdrop to 1 Samuel 22. For David to approach the king of Moab and to ask for safety for his parents. 
I'm sure Naomi could never have seen what terrible suffering that she experienced in her life would now produce for her family, her great-grandson, now the anointed of Israel. The connections in Scripture are astounding. We call this the providence of God. Well, coming back to that story I just shared, Tursky, the Polish flighter, uh, pilot, excuse me, he, he served as a fighter pilot in the Polish Armed Air Force. And after Poland's defeat, he and others crossed into Romania, where they were caught and sent to a concentration camp. Tursky managed to escape and join the French Air Force. And after France's fall, he went to England and fought in the Battle of Britain. On one of his missions, he rammed a German plane and was hit by a scrap of its tail. Partially blinded with blood, he was unconscious when he crashed and landed in a spitfire in England. His skull had been fractured, and the chief surgeon at the hospital thought it was useless to operate. But he awoke and saw a narrow face looking down at him. The fellow in the white smock spoke, and he said, Remember me? You saved my life in Vienna. Tursky remembered and learned the rest of the story. The fugitive passenger had eventually arrived in Warsaw. Before the war, he escaped Scotland, and he, he heard that a Polish squadron had distinguished itself in the Battle of Britain, and he thought Tursky might be in it, and he wrote to inquire, and he was right. He knew Tursky's name because it had been written on the margin of the map that he looked at some time ago. The day before, he had read of a Polish hero shooting down, shooting down five enemy planes and crash landing near a certain hospital. The piece had indicated the flyer's condition seemed hopeless, and he had asked the RAF in Edinburgh to fly him to the hospital named. Tursky asked him, why? Why did you do this? And his answer, I thought that at last I could do something to show my gratitude. You see, I'm a brain surgeon. I operated on you this morning. Friends, that's the providence of God. I mean, who could have guessed that by shielding this fugitive, was the one that was going to save his life. He would rightly say that one had nothing to do with the other, normally. But God's providence is seen in ways that our minds can't fathom. And here's David. It isn't just in a scope of a few years, like Tursky, but over a century before. God isn't confined by time either in his providence. God's providence is evident in the life of David. And following his movements since chapter 20, David fled Saul to Nob, then to Gath, and escaping barely in the cave of Adullam, and then their side trip to serve his parents safely in Moab, and now hiding in the forest of Hereth. Pick it up in chapter 22, verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him, and Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the uh, Tamarask tree on the height uh, with his spear in hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give everyone you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. So when Saul hears the news that this young upstart David is in the forest of Hereth, gathering a, a band of malcontents, he does what any decent king would do. He sets out to crush this rebellion before it gets too big and powerful. And Saul, in his fragile self-image, begins to uh, berate his servants in verse 7. And you can 
see what Saul is thinking here. He's thinking that David is trying to steal the throne from him. An appearance of security are, however, an illusion. Saul is full of fears. He laments his own son's fidelity to the son of Jesse. He believes that he, Saul, is now alone, and that Saul is vulnerable. And, and paranoia has begun to set in to every part of Saul's thinking and life. But maybe in the midst of his delusional words, the truth has sunk into his heart that he isn't the anointed any longer. He has positioned himself against the Lord's anointed. He has positioned himself against the Lord's plan and the Lord's purposes. Now, now there's no evidence in, in the scripture here that Saul's servants were contemplating any disloyalty to Saul. But he's in the midst of his fears. And his reasoning has nothing to do with facts at this point. And Saul's words here in verse 7 are full of irony. If you remember the, the book as a whole. If you remember way back in chapter 8. Samuel's word of warning to the people was that their king would take and take and take from people. And he would be like the other kings of other nations. And now Saul is testifying to the exact thing. And get this. He's saying to them that David won't be like him. Thank the Lord. He says, will the son of Jesse give every one of you? And he's doing it as a, a, a way of pride. Look at me as a king. He won't do this for you. But Saul continued to rant and, and no one responds. Look at verse nine. Then answered Doeg the Edomite who stood by the servants of Saul he says, I saw the son of Jesse come in the Nob and Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub, and he answered, Here I am, my Lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me? you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. At last, in this section, Saul finds someone, a friend who would join in in the imagined conspiracy against him. Doeg, told you to remember him. The Edomite speaks up and tells the king what happened. Although he isn't telling 100% of the truth, throwing in a part about the, how the priest inquired of the Lord for David, but this was exactly what Saul wanted to hear. He wanted to hear that everyone is against him. Everyone is a part of this. Poor old Saul, he's just being singled out. Everyone's on David's side. Jonathan is, his servants are, and now the high priest. And of course, David's out to get him, he believes. Do you see the paranoia of Saul? In verse 14, then Ahimelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David? And who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. And the king said, you shall surely die. Himelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood with him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. 
but the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priest of the Lord. Ahimelech is, is brought before the king and gives his defense. He had not inquired of the Lord for David. He was, he was an upstanding servant for the king, and he could check with all of those in his household and his servants. And he's shocked now of the accusations. Saul is the accuser. Saul is also the judge. And he will not pause to hear any defense. He is convinced that everyone is against him. And he quickly gives the sentence. Ahimelech, the priest, will die. And not just him, but all the priests of the Lord. But his servants, Saul's servants, see this as ludicrous. This order of the king and refuse to follow through. They would not do it. They know better than to strike down the priests of the Lord. At verse 18, then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priest. And Doeg, the Edomite, turned and struck down the priest. And he killed in that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And no, the city of the priest, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. Everyone surrounding Saul is shocked in the silence of the unfounded suspicion of this king. And Doeg realized that this was a moment of opportunity to gain influence, to gain wealth from Saul. Doeg turns and accomplishes Saul's incredibly wicked plan, and he murders 85 priests. It is a horrid wickedness for Saul and Doeg, and they're fully responsible. Saul's final step into satanic darkness is now complete. But Doeg isn't finished. He utterly destroys the town. Men, women, child, infant, ox, donkey, and sheep. He murders them all. Saul here orders an unholy war. This is an act of genocide from a horrific leader. And in so doing, Saul has positioned himself as the Antichrist. The anti-Messiah. Satan incarnate. Saul's inside qualities came out for everyone to see that day. This narrative reminds us today that the scriptures don't present the, the best world or the ideal world, but it presents the real world. Don't be fooled, this is still happening today. Don't read this story in a vacuum. Because of jealousy and fear and anger and deep-seated sin, Saul committed murder and Doeg was eager to follow him. There's no statement in this, in this section here of an evil spirit that comes upon Saul. No, this is all Saul. This is the outworking of the human heart that doesn't have God. What's even more shocking is that in chapter 15, when God commands Saul to make a holy war against the enemies of God, the Amalekites, the Gentiles, Saul refuses to fully comply. Now in chapter 22, Saul tells the Gentile, Doeg, to conduct an unholy war against God. And Saul has set up himself as the ultimate to whom allegiance should be given. He has set up himself in the place of God, as all tyrants do. Saul was the anointed, the Christ. Now David is the anointed, the Christ, the Messiah, God's chosen one. And Saul has become the Antichrist. He opposes David. And so doing, he opposes God. There's also an important footnote in this tragedy. While it was the wicked work of an evil king to murder the 85 priests, it was not outside of God's sovereign purpose. 
evil never is. Earlier in the story, if you remember from 1 Samuel chapter 2, God gave the terrible message to Eli that his house will be destroyed. There'll be no one left. And it all comes to fruition in chapter 22. What happens in this city that dreadful day was connected with the wickedness of Ahimelech's great-grandfather, Eli's depraved sons. Friends, be sure your sin will find you out. And what a warning that is for us. Sometimes tempted to think that sin to you is not a very serious issue because you can get forgiveness from it because you know that Christ can cleanse you. Yet what if your sin has affected others? What can you do for them? Sin is like a network The ramifications of our sinful actions doesn't just affect us, they affect those that surround us. When we break God's law, we don't fully realize the consequences it brings to those that live life around us. Friends, we need to run from sin. Run from the opportunities to disobey God. Well, verse 20, one of the sons of the Himalek, the son of a high tube named Abiathar escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg, the Edomite, was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. One escapes the priest, Abiathar, and where does he run? He runs to the anointed, David. And when he arrives, he informs David of all that has happened, and David promises safety for Abiathar. David is the life giver, and Saul is the life taker. Abiathar is a sign of how the Lord always preserves his people in the midst of destruction. The priest of the Lord may be destroyed, but not completely destroyed. And the Lord does not promise that we will never die for the kingdom of God, but he does promise that the kingdom of God will never die. God will preserve his children. The end of the Westminster Confession has a hopeful bottom line. It says, nevertheless, there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. Amen? And we see this clearly here with the safety of Biathar. David now fully realizes that his calling as the anointed king over Israel will no longer be consumed with his own safety, with his own fears or his own concerns, but now with the duty to protect his people, the people that have been put under his charge. And David is stepping into this role as king now. This ends chapter 22 when we come to chapter 23, David seeking God. Verse 1. Now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Kaliah and robbing the, the threshing floors. Then David sent, excuse me, then David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Kaliah. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if, that, if we go to Kaliah? against the armies of the Philistines. Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Kaliah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men 
went to Kaliah and fought the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Kaliah. As it happens in a, in a few times in this book, it, the timing of events doesn't always line up. Uh, I believe that verses one through five here of chapter 23 are better placed a little earlier when, when Saul is still in Nob with his men uh, of the, before the slaughter of the priests and the people. And, and David hears of this problem in this town and the Philistines come to plunder the harvest crop. It's an easy way for them to farm. Let the, let the people do the hard work of sowing and cultivating and reaping and threshing. And then when all the work is done, they come in and steal the bounty. And David, now no longer part of Saul's army, but it seems as though he's still doing the work for Saul, comes and defeats the Philistines. And in verse 6, when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Kaliah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Kaliah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Kaliah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar, the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard uh, that Saul seeks to come to Kaliah to destroy the city of my account. Will the men of Kaliah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. And David said, will the men of Kaliah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Kaliah, and they went wherever they could. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Kaliah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph, and, and Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Everything in, in this section hinges on verse 6, because when the priest Abiathar comes to David, he brings the priestly ephod. This seems to be the ephod that belonged to the high priest, Abiathar's murdered father, Ahimelech. All the priests wore an ephod called a linen ephod, but the high priest ephod was a more elaborate setup. Attached to this ephod was the, the breast piece which contained the Urim and the Thummim and is associated with receiving wisdom and revelation from God. Now listen, I understand how the human mind works. We, we naturally want to know what it looked like and, and how it worked to receive the word from God. But we don't have those details. And it's probably because the fact is the Bible writers want us to know the facts and the content of divine revelation rather than the mechanism of how they got it. So don't let your mind go into this path to figure out how. Folks, just land on what the, the word says, what God says. We should want the same too. And, and it seems that the people of Kaliah didn't show much affection or appreciation for David and his help in defeating the Philistines because they pass on word to Saul that David was there. The ungrateful people, they were just saved by David. And they turn him into Saul. But friends, this is politics. David has achieved a victory against Israel's principal enemy. And what does Saul do? He continues his vengeance towards David. Now enlisting the help of those that David just saved. But David has the priest and the priest has the ephod. Something Saul 
no longer has. When threatened, David prays and God answers. Now you might say, I see that, and it's all well and nice, but I don't receive this kind of answer from God, this precise, direct guidance that David does here. And I say to you this morning, neither do I, because I don't need it. I'm not the chosen king, and neither are you. It does not damage my ego to realize that David had a special position in the salvation history of God's people. But in principle, there is no difference between this elect king of David and myself. Was it not through the access of a priest that David had contact with God? And isn't this the same privilege that we enjoy today as believers? But we, we have a much greater high priest than Abiathar, don't we? Hebrews 4, 14 and 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. Friends, no one is better than Jesus. And we have access to Jesus, our great high priest. You and I, friends, if we're secure in our salvation in Christ, we have complete, unimpeded access to the King of Kings, to the great high priest, Jesus Christ. And, and like David, if we make it a habit in our lives to carefully and consistently come to the Lord in prayer, he will lead us and guide us. Well, our last section this morning is David continuing on the run, almost cornered by Saul. Verse 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Zephah at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. This is the last time that we'll read of any interaction between David and Jonathan in this book. Jonathan hears of where David is and meets him. And in this, they have their third and final covenant. It says, Jonathan, meeting with David, strengthened his hand in God. I, I found this a fascinating and encouraging phrase. Jonathan brought encouragement for David by strengthening his confidence in God. And how did he do it? By reminding him not to fear. The Bible makes it clear that God was not willing to give David up to Saul. He was determined to use David. But do you think David was consistently confident of this? Wouldn't he have found it hard to see God's protection in the midst of trials? And in this way, friends, God uses our friendship with people in this world. God uses Jonathan in the life of David to bring a resolute grip on God and not himself. And I don't know about you this morning, but in my life, I have those same friendships. In times of trial or suffering, in times of, of wonder and fear, God brings people into my life that extend those same hands to have confidence in God. And I'm strengthened in the hand of God because of those friendships. 
Well, finishing off here, verse 19 through the end. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horish on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of Jeshayamon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is and, and who has seen him there, for it told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with sure information. Then I go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Zipha ahead of Saul. Now David and his men in the wilderness of Maon and the Arabia to the south of Jeshayamon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the rock of escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. So the word of word comes to Saul where David is and it seems as though word is always coming to Saul somehow always getting information of where David's at and he moves in to capture David did you catch there what happened in verse 26 the end of verse 26 and 27 listen as Saul and his men were closing on David and his men to capture them a messenger came to Saul saying hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid against the land you see it, don't you? The providence of God there, do you see it? Just as Saul is there, right around the corner, David can hear the loud noises of the army coming. But he has nowhere else to go. He's trapped. And a messenger comes and calls away Saul. Now you can read this with blind, unbelieving eyes and even babbling about how close that was for David. Boy, David was sure lucky that day. Or you can read it with eyes of faith, exalting in the unfathomable number of ways that God works in the lives of his children. You know, in this, God is laughing at the work of Saul, laughing at his meager hunting of David, laughing at him because he has everything under control. Do you see it, friends? God is faithful to his children. Well, as we end here, I know there's a lot to think through. There's a lot of details that maybe we didn't cover this morning, these three chapters. But one idea I want to go back and spend just the remaining moments on is the idea of fear. Have you noticed how often the Bible speaks these words, do not fear? And they're always spoken in terrifying circumstances. When fear is the most natural and reasonable thing to do. And now understand, these words, as we read them in the Bible, are never empty attempts of comfort, but a call to see the reality that is more powerful than the terrifying circumstances. How could it be possible for David, knowing and seeing that Saul was hunting him, to take away his life, not to fear? 
The hand of Saul was the hand that hurled that spear at David a few times. And not just David, Saul tries to kill his own son by the spear. So how could both of them stand together and not be in fear? Jonathan knew the answer. It was by believing and hearing the promise of God. He said to David, you shall be king over Israel. Jonathan strengthens David by reminding him of God's word. When David heard from Jonathan in that moment, it overcame all that he saw. All David saw was the malicious intent of Saul to take David's life. All he saw was, was terror. All that he saw was, was danger. He was fearful until his friend came to remind him of what God's word says. That David would be king over Israel. See, friends, what removes the fear in our lives is not having the threat removed, but where we place our faith. A lot of the Christian life is the constant practice of reminding ourselves what the Bible says to be true. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you're, you are secure in Christ. He will keep you. He will present you blameless before God in all his glory. If you've attended for any period of time in our services, you notice that I usually end the service with a benediction from the book of Jude. And the benediction is a blessing spoken as a final word at the end of a worship service. It expresses our hope and confidence in God's grace to his people that enables us to walk with him through whatever circumstances we face in life. I chose the benediction from Jude because it encapsulates so much of the hope that we have in Christ. This morning, we're going to end a little differently. We're going to end by singing a new song. As the worship team comes up, it's, it's kind of a benediction song. It's actually a really old hymn. It's been updated with a new third line, and I heard this song for the first time while visiting a church in Washington, D.C. four years ago, and encouraged my heart and, and trust in God. The song is called, He Will Hold Me Fast, and I realized that there are some this morning, and you're on the run. You're, you're fearful. You maybe feel like life is closing in on you, and like David, you don't see any hope and any end in sight, and you need to be reminded this morning of the truth of the gospel, that you are in Christ and God will hold you fast. For our Savior loves us so, he will hold us fast. Father, I thank you for the truth of this song that reminds our hearts again that we are safe and secure in your hands and that you hold us fast. And I pray for those in the midst this morning, Father, that have no relationship with you. And I ask, God, that you would save them this morning, that you would bring them to an understanding of the gospel their understanding of a need for a Savior, and they would place their faith and trust in you this morning. And for those of us this morning that are yours, I pray that we will leave this place this morning knowing and reminded again this morning, refreshed anew, that you have us, that you keep us, that you'll protect us and guide us until you take us home. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.